This is AgriPulse Open Mic. I'm your host, Jeff Daly. Our guest this week is California Farm Bureau President Jamie Johansson. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by Bayer Crop Science. Bayer is helping farmers produce sustainably to protect the environment and feed a growing world. Health for all, hunger for none. AgriPulse Open Mic continues with California farmer Jamie Johansson next. As a leader in the industry, we at Bayer have the opportunity and responsibility to help address the challenges around sustainability and ensure that we can all thrive while using our planet's resources in a sustainable way. Sustainability is an integral part of our operations, and we believe that farmers and agriculture can be a part of the solution to many of the planet's biggest challenges. Whether that's helping growers utilize new technologies to get more out of their land, or incentivizing carbon-smart practices such as strip-till or no-till and planting cover crops, we're committed to innovate, grow, and partner with farmers to help shape what's possible and further our vision of health for all, hunger for none. For more on Bayer's sustainability efforts, visit cropscience.bayer.com. This is AgriPulse Open Mic. On July 12th, the AgriPulse Food and Ag Policy Summit will be held in Sacramento. Today we offer a preview of some of the obstacles California farmers are facing from not just the climate, but headwinds from government and a society far removed from production agriculture. California Farm Bureau President Jamie Johansson says West Coast farmers need solid footing. Today it's a lot of uncertainty. Uh, it's just, that's just the way it is in terms of of what we're facing. I, I farm in the foothills, so it's not only what we face on the farm when it comes to weather, and every farmer can relate to the fact that, you know, a thousand things have to go right to have a successful harvest, but only one thing has to go wrong to be a devastating year for you. Uh, and that's now we see in California expanding outside of that with recent forest fires. Four million acres burned. It affected not just, you know, my family's been evacuated three out of the last four years either uh, mandatory or advised evacuation. And that story is all over California now in terms of widespread. We saw 10 different counties, uh, wineries and, and vineyards impacted by fires when it comes to uh, 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 getting indemnity payments for the crop insurance. Uh, so it's not only what's happening on the farm, but it is it is with forest fires. Of course, now what, what hopefully won't be, but is shaping up to be an epic drought in California. And uh, really a lack of, of urgency in terms of actually taking those positive steps to uh, remedy, you know, drought and forest fires. And so we're pushing hard at California Farm Bureau that while we see a lot of money being thrown around and we see a lot of money being uh, proposed in Washington, D.C., until we see that action taken on the ground, that money means nothing. And that's the most difficult part has been having the solutions because we know the solution to drought is storage. And, uh, of course, in 2000, in the last drought in 2014, working with then-Governor Brown, we successfully passed a proposition that put $2 billion into more storage. And we were very clear with the voters uh, that we meant uh, uh, new dams and storage. And that proposition passed by 60%, yet we still wait to see any, any uh, meaningful steps taken to, uh, to see those funds allocated to projects that can begin. What does it take for California agriculture to survive in the climate that you are in, not just literally with weather, but from trade and from the relationship with the legislature and the non-farm public in your state? 
particularly we need a legislature, we need, we need government officials um, who want to understand what it takes to farm and what we need to have happen um, in terms of the resources needed uh, and also the, the, ultimately the freedom to farm. And at this time, it, it is, we, we are, seem to be caught up both in a, in a, in a state level and at a national level um, that uh, we come up with just random dates that we need to uh, meet compliance issues with or random percentage points that, that haven't really shown the difference that it would make if we, say, if we re- reached 30% conservation of our land. And then sharing what the end goal is that, that our society wants for, for agriculture. We have been busy trying to engage. I think, I think there was a hesitancy before in agriculture, you know, when sustainability was a new word, there was a real hesitancy to engage, even, you know, within California Farm Bureau. And so we sort of let that sustainability uh, phrase be defined for us. And so certainly now, um, I know that the Biden administration has recently uh, uh, put forward a 30% conservation of, of lands by 2030 and 30% of our coast. Our governor did that last October. And it was a little frustrating at the time because that was actually a bill that did not get through the legislature, but then was put into place through executive order, order during the COVID pandemic. Um, but we've been very proactive uh, in, in engaging, saying, okay, what do you mean by conservation? Because what we are seeing uh, with our public lands, particularly going back to the forest fire issue, is that the strongest voices now that are dictating uh, what's happening through, through legislation um, seems to be the voices of preservation, which is much different than uh, a, a conservation standard that we uphold in agriculture. What about water rights as you move ahead with a, a shortage of supply? California, as you can imagine, a very complicated water law, as it is in, in most of the West as well. Um, you know, it is defending those water rights, and in California we call them pre-1914 uh, water rights. Uh, those are our senior water right holders uh, who uh, generally... Uh, have a right to that water. And it wasn't until the last drought that we saw California uh, regulators start to really chip away at that and even um, putting out orders of uh, curtailment notices to pre-1914 rights, which really perked all of our heads up that this was unprecedented territory we're going to because if you're a senior water right holder, you knew you could get your water. And a lot of times that water would be sold maybe down south to a junior water right holder, and the system worked very well. But now we're seeing it become more complicated uh, in terms of really having surety that the water will be there. Um, and then also the way we, we measure water and how we deal with water when it comes to the Endangered Species Act. One of the things we have is biological opinions, which determines how the water moves through our delta. So the water from the north, where the state water project and the federal water project uh, begin, have to move through the delta. Uh, it is biological opinions that determine when those water pumps can run. And we're having difficulties now with uh, sustaining a, 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 you know, a cold water fishery, even with these biological opinions, but yet we refuse to, to visit those biological opinions uh, to see how the science has changed and how we can better move uh, water, not only for uh, farmers and, and, and cities, uh, but also for our fish. And it just, it just hasn't been working. It's, this year has been dramatically more difficult. I'm hearing of a million acres or more of fallowed land for this season. Probably one in five uh, acres. I know we were a, per, a big rice farming area where I farmed. Out of 500,000 acres of rice, you'll probably see 100,000 acres uh, that won't be planted or fallowed. Uh, and that certainly would keep with what we saw in uh, the previous drought, which, which ran from 2012 to 2016. Uh, you know, it actually cost it, it was about 2.2 
two and a half billion dollars in losses for agriculture, uh, and, and with that came with the loss estimated loss jobs of around eighteen thousand. So uh, we certainly are shaping up to to, to put ourselves right back uh, where we were just a short four or five years ago. So. You know, the frustration is high in California. And one of the things that we were left with in the previous drought was over 100 million dead forest trees because of drought and increased pests that came with those drought and killed those trees up in our forest, which we are now see uh, burning in our devastating wildfires. So there's bigger consequences for not dealing with drought or, or water shortages, I should say, because we know drought's going to come. California spent 40 of the last 100 years in a drought situation but it's the water shortage, we simply have to address in the state. And we can do it. We have 200 million acre feet of water on average that fall in California. Um, about uh, maybe around 15 million acre feet of water is used for agriculture. Uh, so we know there's water to be stored out there because a little known fact as well is that in the past 15 to 20 years, every county in California has had a federal, dec- uh, federal emergency declaration for flooding. So we know we have heavy years Uh, And we know we're going to have dry years, and we have to take advantage of those years uh, when we have a a big rainfall. What are the lingering effects of the COVID pandemic on California agriculture? I see it from trade and containers and even now wood pallets. You know, I I think the the biggest thing is we haven't recovered in terms of either trade, you know, the slowdowns at the port or simply not having the containers that are being rushed back to China so that they can quickly send more uh, imports to America and not wanting to take the time to put on uh, agricultural products and then, of course, unload them on the other side. Uh, and then also we have not seen our economy fully recover in California with the shutdowns. Our governor said not until June 15th uh, we should we should be opening back up. But still, our, our, our dairy farmers are really hurting, particularly with the, with the shutdown of the schools and what the school lunch program means for California farmers, particularly our dairy farms. Um, our restaurants are slowly opening back up, uh, but the food service really hasn't hasn't recovered. And of course, half of what we produce does end up in a food service kind of facility. So uh, that that's really the biggest lingering effect. And then, of course, too, we had the regulatory front. We had emergency uh, COVID standards issued by OSHA, which created a lot of confusion for our farmers. But you know, I think overall, in the pandemic, as we look back, and one thing our cal- uh, farmers should be proud of is how quickly we responded to that pandemic in terms of protecting our employees. And and our family members and the innovation that we saw on the farm uh, long before uh, we saw any sort of government intervention. Uh, we were proactive in how we separated our workers and, and kept them safe on the farm. Jimmy, would you agree that some individual social agenda is a challenge for your agriculture? Uh, absolutely, and it comes from the fact, and I think this is the debate we're having right now as we talk about climate change and, and, and what we face in the future, and that is those forces out there that refuse to believe that this planet simply will look different because we live on it. And so how do we find that balance? And I go back again, you know, we talked about the challenge between uh, maybe having a, a, a working lands program that values conservation and it isn't preservation, and preservation is a static concept, and it, 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 it's what we're seeing happening in our national forests uh, and, and a lot of our public lands is this, is this preservation mode in which you cannot take care of, uh, actively take care of that land. And that land will eventually take care of itself because we know in the early 1900s when we talk about forest fires, in some particular years we would see 9 million acres burned. You know, one way or the other, that land is going to be managed. And I think from an economic standpoint, from a safety standpoint, we have to do more uh, to really exercise that conservation aspect that, that we owe owe the land. 
you know, I like to bring up that what we've, what we've seen here, we, we talk about natural resources and, and California certainly is incredibly blessed with natural resources in terms of whether it's soil or forests or even weather. Uh, the definition of a resource is, is something that is used in a time of need or something that we build economic value out of. And that ultimately is what uh, uh, farming is, a little sunlight, sunlight, little water, seed. Um, we manage those resources and we create jobs and create wealth. But the opposite of a resource is a liability. So if you do not manage it, if you do not manage those resources, you are ultimately creating a liability. And whether that's sure cost of having to maintain something or having it uh, burned down, uh, we have to get back to really exercising what a resource is. And those are the most difficult things to explain to the legislature. And I know when our governor signed the, the you know, 30% land conservation by 2030, I talked with him, and uh, I laid out, and he was adamant, and we appreciate the language being used now, and just recently testified there in the House Ag Committee on what working lands were, um, and I appreciate that we're throwing in working lands, uh, and we have to throw, we have to remember that the lands have to work, but I was up front with our governor, and um, I said, uh, we know that some of the loudest voices in this room, in, in the room, will be those people who do not believe that land should be working, but should remain idle and preserved. From the county to the state and even to the federal, we see pushback on pesticides, increased fees, notification systems. What of a challenge is this for California farmers? And is this something that you see could migrate east? Certainly, we look at our crop protection tools, um, and they're going to play an even more important part. And that's something, too, that you know I think that we're a little worried about as we talk about climate change. We're going to see increased pressures from pests. And certainly as a border state, uh, as a state with a lot of uh, international travel coming to it, you know, our exotic pests uh, every year, millions and millions of dollars uh, to combat non-native pests that make its way into California. And we need to have those tools. You know, I bring up uh, one of the first actions taken by our governor was an executive order that ultimately banned chlorpyrifos in California. And then we were taken aback because there really wasn't a whole lot of science behind it. It was a crop protection tool in California that in the last few years had been reduced, you know, use had been reduced by 80%, but yet was taken off the table for those situations where in a dire situation, you were glad to have that in your, in your, um, in your toolbox. Uh, if it came to a pest or even employee safety, a lot of it used to kill black widow spiders and, and grapevines. So there was an employee safety kind of aspect to it. Um, but in the conversations with the governor was like, oh, we're going to come up with alternative methods. And, and they did. And we participated in those. But a lot of the alternative methods, we never talked about the efficacy of these replacement uh, pesticides and what that means for farmers and how much more inefficient we would be in terms of application uh, in our fields uh, and on our farms. And I think that's something as we talk about a changing climate and how agriculture is going to react we cannot make agriculture less efficient and at the same time expect to tackle climate change um, at the same time. I mean, climate smart ag and efficiency must go hand in hand. Uh, and, and that uh, is really important when it comes to the to our crop protection tools. The meat industry and uh, the livestock organizations quite concerned about Prop 12 and your state imposing its will on others who would raise animals and meat be sold inside your state. Where did California stand on this and is this the end of it or is this just the next chapter? I mean, obviously we were, we were absolutely opposed to it. It started with Prop 2, um, you know, over... 15 years ago, we saw similar actions taken in other states as well. 
um, by the animal rights uh, industry. Uh, we are concerned about it because we do not have the pork operations. Uh, we're dependent on our bacon coming from Iowa and, and pork chops from uh, from Ohio. Um, so we know what that's going to do to our food costs, and we saw that the first one will be, you know, with uh, egg-laying hens in California and what that did to the price uh, of eggs. Uh, I think one of the things, the frustrating part, too, is that uh, while we opposed it, we also thought sometimes industry itself, our buyers, start to support it and start to um, say, okay, you know, a certain restaurant commits to uh, free-range eggs again by a certain date. Um, and that, that really undercuts uh, having that honest discussion about how we care for our animals and, and ultimately how we feed um, a very hungry, uh, a very hungry nation. The president uh, seems adamant to support electric vehicles and a transition to electric vehicles. Your governor was a leader on that before this president was elected. How does the push to electric uh, affect your ports, your farms? How could it affect your state? You know, it, it is, it, and I guess it, it, the frustrating thing too is as we look at the electrification. I mean, it's, technology is going to happen. And I think our, the first thing was why did we pick twenty thirty five? You know, we know what we have to do to to get the state electrified um, in terms of, you know, replacing gas stations or having electrical terminals that everyone can use. And one of the things, you know, as, you know, we've seen the rebates for electrical vehicles in California for a long time. And, you know, what what kind of has happened with this whole uh, green agenda? Um, and it, it, we sort of joke about it as some legislatures in, in, in the Central Valley uh, joke about it, and it is that, you know, a lot of times we see a lot of these, these initiatives uh, mean someone on the coast is going to get a free car, but those of us uh, in, in, in rural California are going to get a higher electricity bill. And we certainly are seeing our electricity bills go through the roof. And at the same time, too, as, as he was putting into place, uh, again, another executive order uh, for, for electrical vehicle uh, EV engines last summer, here in California, we were in the middle of a massive blackout simply because our electrical grid could not keep up with the demand during the summer months. We hadn't seen that in California for over, you know, 30 years. But at the same time, we have a lot of practical issues. We have a lot of, a lot of issues we have to figure out to implement before we get to electrical vehicles and tractors. And, and you know, I think as, as farmers and ranchers, we certainly um, if, if it works on our farm and it's, it's a cleaner and a better technology, we have demonstrated all along we're willing to use it. But what is the cost? And I think that's the other part, too, is that we look at these rising costs. If it's going to be more expensive machinery, we go back to our original, our, our, how we just began this discussion with what does that mean for the next generation or even new farmers that want to come in as we have these additional costs put on farmers. But certainly technology is going to happen, and American farmers have never been shy about embracing new technology. Climate smart agriculture, is that a challenge or is that an opportunity for farmers in your state? There is an opportunity because at the core of what we do uh, in in agriculture, and you know, this is for any, any farmer, is, is we grow things that take up carbon. So there can be an opportunity. We looked at that as our carbon, as California created a carbon trading market. Um, uh, we looked, uh, if if agriculture could uh, participate or what would be some of the advantages uh, if agriculture could participate in a, in a carbon sequestration program, what would be the value of that? You know, the thing about agriculture, again, is that we don't have a, always have a lot of control over what 
uh, nature hands us. We're not in a controlled factory. Uh, you know, we're outside. Uh, so we need to be very careful. We've seen a lot of, in California, we have seen a lot of programs start out as parrots that quickly became a stick and became really difficult uh, to live with. And I think that's one of the fears that, that we have uh, in, in agriculture as we have these discussions is how do we keep it so that it's voluntary, it meets, there is a, there is a market demand for it, um, uh, and then how do we fund it in terms of uh, benefits to the farmers. And uh, as we can see, uh, you know, a lot of uh, government funding uh, dries up very quickly, and then we're stuck uh, holding a program uh, that we can't afford, uh, but yet are still have to participate in. Labor is a national issue for agriculture. Uh, in your own state, you've got AB5 now with regard to the independent contractor employee issue. Are the challenges of not having enough workers or restrictions on having workers pushing you to automation and either to stop farming or to uh, make some pretty serious ad- adaptation in the crops you raise or the way you raise them. I mean, all of the above, you know, and I think that's one of the frustrating parts too. Is that here we are trying to create a job uh, for an in- for for people, um, which are good paying jobs. I mean, we're talking, you know, uh, it's not uncommon to see uh, uh, farm workers making twenty twenty five dollars an hour, um, and yet, uh, you know labor laws that come into place that just simply make it almost impossible to hire more. We are an ag overtime state. We are seeing that implemented um, and our, our work weeks being shortened. Um, uh, and we are seeing the effects that it is having on the farm worker who simply the farmer cannot pay that overtime. And so now uh, that farm worker, farm laborer is seeing his, his or her hours cut um, and trying to bring that to the attention that we simply cannot afford to do this, uh, pay these, pay this overtime because we can't raise our prices to the end user uh, there. You know, what we have seen, and it really is um, uh, in a survey that we did uh, with our members, uh, about a third of them uh, have said that they have changed or are thinking of changing what they're growing to a less uh, labor-intense type of crop. Uh, and I think that is one of the reasons why you're seeing a lot of, a lot of you've seen a lot of nut crops uh, go in, walnuts, almonds, uh, over the last uh you know, 10, 15 years is because it is, it is less, uh, uh, labor and more mechanized. But we have to deal with this labor issue now in H2A in California. We weren't a big H2A using state, uh, simply because of affordable housing in California is hard to come by and required in H2A, but we've seen a dramatic growth to where now California is the fourth largest H2A user last year alone, adding 5,000 H2A workers uh, to our workforce. And I can tell you a lot of times H2A is is the program of last resort because it is very costly uh, for a small farm or even a medium-sized farm to implement, but we're seeing that, we're, we're seeing that program grow. Uh, so our efforts now really is to how can we how can we streamline that program, but also how can we expand on uh, the seasonal workers uh, outside of the H-2A program that we need, and we need around 450,000 seasonal workers a year for our specialty crops. Well, Jamie Johansson, our hearts are with you with regard to the challenging circumstances of drought that you and other farmers are facing, not just in California, but in the West. It's always a busy time on the farm in the spring, and we want to thank you for taking time personally to visit with us on this edition of Open Mic. Jamie, it is Open Mic, and today you have the last word. (laughs) Thank you, and thanks for having me on. Really, farming and ranching represents the oldest and best green economy in the world. Um, 
we've always been focused on sustainability and adaptability. Uh, growing plants pulls carbon out of the air, and I, I may be biased, but California farmers uh, do that better than anyone, but American farmers do that uh, as well as anyone in the world as well. And all while, you know, the efforts to conserve water, energy, soil, uh, and reduce emissions. Uh, and for that reason, farmers, ranchers, and even loggers uh, should have and have earned a prominent seat at the table when it comes to discussing uh, our nation's working lands. And working lands only work when people are allowed to work them. Our thanks to California Farm Bureau President Jamie Johansson, our guest this week on Open Mic. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by Bayer Crop Science. Bayer's helping farmers produce sustainably to protect the environment and feed a growing world. Learn more at cropscience.bayer.com. For AgriPulse, I'm Jeff Kelly.